Welcome to the Mastering Blood Sugar Podcast. This is episode number 23, Diabetes Insights with Dr. Brian Mole. My name is Dr. Brian Mole, the diabetes coach, certified and master licensed diabetes educator, and IFM certified functional medicine practitioner. Each week on the Mastering Blood Sugar podcast, I bring you an inspiring health or lifestyle expert to help you learn to boost your metabolism, lose weight, and master your blood sugar with natural drug-free strategies. Thanks for being here with me today, and let's get started. Hey everyone, it's Dr. Brian Mole, the Diabetes Coach, back with another episode of Diabetes Insights, where I review emerging science in the field of diabetes and nutrition. And today I'm going to be reviewing a paper from 2011 in the journal Current Diabetes Reports by Osama Hamdi from Harvard University called Protein Content in Diabetes Nutrition Plan. Dr. Hamdi works in the Department of Endocrinology at Harvard Medical School and the Jocelyn Diabetes Center. And this is a really insightful article. He dives deep into protein recommendations and really helps to clear up and elucidate how to figure out how much protein to be consuming for a good diabetes diet. He talks about some of the current problems with advice related to diet and protein, talks about some of the common myths and misconceptions, and really helps to clear things up, as I said. So he starts by saying there's increasing evidence that a modest increase in dietary protein intake above the current recommendation is a valid option towards better diabetes control weight reduction and improvement in blood pressure, lipid profile, and markers of inflammation. He continues, a higher dietary protein intake reduces hunger, improves satiety, increases thermogenesis, and limits lean muscle mass loss during weight reduction using a reduced calorie diet and increased physical activity. So in this paper, he talks about how our protein recommendations ended up where they are now by basically walking us through the history of dietary recommendations, starting in the first half of the 20th century with Elliot P. Jocelyn, the namesake for the Jocelyn Clinic, and how they were changed in the late 1970s when concerns were raised about the amount of fat in the diet and coronary artery disease, particularly saturated fat. Now, most of the studies done during this period were association studies and really have been largely debunked, but at that point, the evidence seemed pretty compelling, so the mainstream recommendations headed in that direction. He also explains that there there was a fear that too much protein could lead to renal problems or kidney problems. So protein percentage was reduced to get to our current day recommendations, which are about 50 to 55% calories from carbohydrates, 30 to 35% from fat, restricting saturated fat, and 15 to 20% from protein. 
And he says, quote, although it might seem harmful to recommend a higher carbohydrate intake to treat a disease principally characterized by carbohydrate intolerance, it was generally considered at that time, this is in the 1970s, as the best or the safest option compared with maintaining a high caloric intake from fat sources. So Dr. Hamdi here is obviously trying to empathize with the people who set these recommendations and give at least partial justification for how they came up with the numbers that they came up with, despite being highly illogical. Now, one of the problems he discusses in detail in this paper is the idea of looking at protein as a percentage of total calories versus an absolute amount of dietary protein related to body weight. He says here in the paper, it has been confusing to determine what is the exact amount of protein that many nutrition guidelines are recommending. The percentage of protein intake of total calories has been frequently interchanged with the absolute amount of dietary protein expressed as grams per kilogram of body weight. The hazard is that using the percentage value to calculate protein intake in a restricted calorie diet may result in an unintentionally low absolute protein intake. In other words, when you're restricting energy, which is typically a good idea for people with type 2 diabetes, and you're using a protein percentage, you can easily become deficient or get into a state of protein insufficiency, which can have negative consequences on health. So, Dr. Hamdi continues, it is logical that future recommendations should use grams per kilogram of body weight instead of using a fixed percentage of calories to calculate protein intake. The absolute amount of protein will be kept constant and may allow that individual to decrease caloric intake from other sources such as carbohydrates and fat. So in other words, if you're going to restrict energy, which we consider carbohydrates and fat as energy foods, but you want to keep your protein levels constant, we use grams of protein per kilogram of body weight an absolute amount of protein as opposed to a percentage of your diet. And I think that makes a lot of sense. So don't let your dietitian or your physician give you a percentage of your diet that should be protein, 10%, 15%, 20%, 30%, whatever it's going to be. You want to use an absolute amount of protein. Now, you may be wondering, how much protein should I consume? Well, I'll give you the punchline of the paper. Dr. Hamdi states that 1.5 to 2 grams per kilogram of body weight, or sometimes we look at ideal body weight, has been suggested for overweight and obese patients with type 2 diabetes with normal kidney function. And I'll go over that in more detail later. Now, what about kidney disease? And is eating too much protein dangerous? Dr. Hamdi digs into that topic in detail, and he says, quote, there is no evidence to show that increased protein intake is harmful in patients with normal kidney function or that it will induce microalbuminuria or result in a more rapid decline in GFR. So these are two kidney tests that we recommend for people with diabetes, checking microalbumin levels in the urine and checking estimated GFR as part of a standard blood profile. 
Now, as a caveat, he does say that there is evidence that for patients with type 1 diabetes, there is evidence that a high-protein diet can increase risk of kidney disease, increase the rate of the progression of kidney disease. But this is typically an uncontrolled type 1 diabetes. He states, there are little data to show that reducing protein intake slows the progression of renal disease, but he makes a strong point of saying that that data is not there for type 2 diabetes. He references several studies, including the Nurses Health Study, which was published in the Annals of Internal Medicine in 2003, stating, quote, the study concluded that high protein intake was not associated with decline in renal function in women with normal renal function. So if your kidneys are healthy, if your GFR is above 60, you don't need and you have type 2 diabetes or normal glycemia, no diabetes, you do not need to worry about a high-protein diet causing kidney problems. Now, some people in the ketogenic diet community worry that eating too much protein can actually raise blood sugar. And there is some rationale for this concern, but there's also data that shows in the real world this just doesn't happen. Now, the rationale is that about 50 to 60% of the amino acids in our protein are glucogenic. In other words, they can be converted into glucose through gluconeogenesis in the liver. It's been reported that for every 100 grams of ingested meat protein, the body could produce 56 grams of glucose. But what really happens in the body is that 100 grams of protein is broken down to amino acids, which typically are used for repair, production of neurotransmitters, detoxification, enzymes, and very little of that is actually used for energy. Not to mention that 20 to 25% of that 100 grams of protein is wasted in the thermic effect of food. So if we're eating some carbohydrate and or some fat, we're going to use those as energy. If we have some stored body fat, we're going to use that for energy before we're going to use the amino acids in the protein we're consuming for energy. Now, Dr. Hamdi references a book by Dr. McLean, Modern Methods in Diagnosis and Treatment of Glycosuria and Diabetes, and says, to study the effect of protein intake on blood glucose, in 1924, McLean gave 250 grams of beef, which contains about 50 grams of protein, to a subject with type 2 diabetes whose fasting glucose concentration was about 280 milligrams per deciliter. He observed that blood glucose did not change for five hours. So that 50 grams of protein could have produced 25 grams of glucose, but the subject's blood sugar did not change for five hours. When the same subject was given 25 grams of glucose, the amount of glucose that theoretically could have been produced from the 50 grams of protein in the 250 grams of meat, the blood glucose concentration increased to nearly 600 milligrams per deciliter. So there is a perfect example of how just because 
protein can be converted to glucose. In the real world, it doesn't really raise blood sugar, whereas 25 grams of glucose shot this guy's blood sugar up from 280 to 600 milligrams per deciliter. Dr. Hamby goes on to talk about some other studies using high-protein diets, one published in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition in 2003 showed that plasma glucose was reduced by 38% on a high-protein diet. And hemoglobin A1c dropped from 8.1% down to 7.3%. He also talks about weight loss. He says, quote, available data indicate that short-term weight reduction of 7 to 10% in patients with type 2 diabetes improves insulin sensitivity, endothelial function, and diabetes control, and reduces many other risk factors for coronary artery disease. Substantial weight loss has been shown to be associated with diabetes remission in 72% of patients after two years. Dr. Hamby was actually involved in a study called the Y Weight Program developed at Jocelyn Diabetes Center, where they used a high-protein, low-carbohydrate, energy-restricted diet for 12 weeks. The patients who went through this trial lost an average of almost 25 pounds, their waist circumference decreased by 3.5 inches, and their A1C decreased from 7.5% to 6.6% on average. A year after the trial, they showed that 55% of the participants continued to lose weight and maintained the significantly decreased A1C. He says, at the same degree of weight loss, a high-protein weight reduction diet may have, in the long term, a more favorable effect on the cardiovascular risk profile than a low-protein weight reduction diet in patients with type 2 diabetes. That information came out of a study published in Diabetologia in 2004. He says, in the Y-weight program, C-reactive protein and other markers of inflammation— coagulation, and endothelial dysfunction such as tumor necrosis factor alpha, interleukin-6, PAI-1, intravascular and intracellular adhesion molecules, and E-selectin were all reduced significantly, and adiponectin was nearly doubled. These changes in circulating cytokines indicate a possible reduction in cardiovascular risk. He says potential beneficial outcomes associated with protein ingestion in patients with diabetes include increased satiety, which facilitates reduction in energy consumption, increased thermogenesis and thermic effect of food, and enhanced stimulatory effect on muscle protein anabolism, favoring the retention of lean muscle mass while improving metabolic profile. All this just by increasing the amount of protein in your diet. He cautions that a protein intake of 0.8 to 1 gram per kilogram body weight should be reserved only for patients with diabetes and with chronic kidney disease together. Other patients with diabetes, he says, should not reduce protein intake to less than 1 gram per kilogram of body weight. Increasing protein intake to 1.5 to 2 grams per kilogram of body weight in association of a low caloric diet and increased physical activity may enhance weight loss, 
reduce blood pressure, improve lipid profile, and reduce hemoglobin A1c. Such increase in protein consumption has not been associated with deterioration of renal or kidney function in patients with diabetes and normal renal function. So there you go, guys. Protein content in diabetes nutrition plan from Osama Hamdi, Department of Endocrinology, Harvard Medical School, Joslin Diabetes Center. This guy knows his stuff, and he's encouraging you to eat more protein. So cut down on your carbohydrate, especially your refined processed carbohydrates. Replace some of those carbs with protein and supplement that with healthy fats. Okay, well, I hope you found that interesting and helpful. This is Dr. Brian Mole, the Diabetes Coach, with another episode of Diabetes Insights. I really appreciate you listening to the Mastering Blood Sugar podcast. If you like this information, share this with your doctor or clinician or brother or sister, mom, father, son, daughter, or friends. So you can open their eyes and help them understand these insights related to diabetes management and blood sugar control. And if you really like the podcast, go to our iTunes page, Mastering Blood Sugar Podcast on iTunes. Give me a five-star review and a positive comment. If I read your comment during one of my weekly interview podcasts, we're going to send you as a gift the best of the Diabetes Summit on Flash Drive. So go to iTunes, leave me a five-star review and a positive comment. Subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any episodes and share this with your doctor, your friends, and your family members. All right, guys, you can find out more about me at my website. It's Dr. Mole, D-R-M-O-W-L-L, drmole.com. You can sign up for my newsletter there. We have a free download called Blood Sugar Manifesto. Make sure you grab your copy of that. And you can check out all my interview podcast show notes and get the transcripts there at drmole.com. All right, everybody. Thanks again for listening to Diabetes Insights with Dr. Brian Mole, the Diabetes Coach. I'll be back soon with another episode. <laughs>